Hello and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast where we break down the health tech news every single week. This week is a really special moment for us at Somex because we are joined by an extra, extra special guest who was with us right at the very beginning of our journey. And we are going to hear about something that she's been working on with her amazing team a little bit later. So I'm delighted to welcome Elena. How are you doing? Hi, Jess. Hi, James. Um, I'm doing great. Thank you. And yes, as you mentioned, I've been following you guys from the very beginning and really excited to finally be on the Health Check Pigeon podcast um, with my Health Check Pigeon mug as well. Excellent. (laughs) And for those of you who, who don't know, Elena is CEO of Dharma Health, who are doing really amazing, amazing things in the women's health research space, um, which, as I said, we're going to come on to talking about a little bit more later. But if you want to be following a company that's doing something truly transformational for women and their experience of healthcare, make sure that you are following Dharma Health and up to speed on what they're up to. James, how has your week been? Um, I've always been good. Uh, last night went to a Doctorpreneurs event. Um, yeah, 10, 10 year anniversary. Or they got there and they were like, yeah, it's not actually 10 years, it's actually 12, but 10 years sounded better to get you all here. So uh, that was an <laughs> interesting start to it. Um, but it was cool. It was nice. Um, I actually just put a LinkedIn post out just now that just said, like, I remember, I think it was seven or eight years ago, I went to a Doctorpreneurs event on a Saturday. Um, to pitch the Digital Health London Accelerator, which was brand new at the time, um, and yeah, just a room full of people that had not really had a community before. It seemed, and actually, Doctorpreneurs was one of the really kind of early pioneers of this clinical community that wanted to be involved in entrepreneurship or intrapreneurship or just tech in general. And it was nice, like seeing everybody again, a lot of old faces, I say old faces, I mean, I don't mean we're getting older, I mean, of course we are, but faces of old um, that I've seen and known for a long time. Um, Yeah, really nice catching up with people. Good to see Avi, good to see Vishal. Yeah, really nice evening. Did a panel with some excellent, excellent entrepreneurs on it. Um, Yeah, it was good. Good week. Amazing. They must have seen it all, the whole transformation. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny one that like I did say at the time, there was someone that came up to me afterwards and, and uh, physician's associate that came up to me afterwards and just said like, that oh, it was, you know, such a great event, such a great panel, like everyone had such great insights and everyone, everyone's advice was really good. And it was a funny one because, because of the fact the event has been like, you know, we, all that, that community has been around for 10 years, actually a lot of those strategies that were talking that were talked about you know the high risk raise money go hard on products you know get get a thousand users get 10,000 users get a million users just get those and the business model will work itself out like that kind of approach um which i'm not saying that those people did but that's one of the approaches of you know the entrepreneurship uh i was going to say dream but not necessarily dream but it's it's part of raising money and just going fast right the blitz scale approach if you will Yes, those are the survivors, but actually in that, you know, eight, 10 years that I've been around in the health tech space, like, you know, the people that were talking about at the beginning and not the same people that talk about it now, there is a bit of survivorship bias that all you ever hear is like, that's the good thing to do. 
um, because you're only ever seeing the people mm. for whom that's being successful. So it's an in- it's an interesting one that that I did say like you know those journeys are very personal and lots of people are assessing the risk individually and taking a strategy themselves. It's not to say that just because it's worked here it works for everyone. In fact, quite the opposite because the panels that I've done over the past ten years certainly are not the same people as when I started. And so there are a few that are the same, definitely, you know, Suman from, from Dr. Fi and some real kind of OGs of the space as, uh, as Avi called it or Vishal called it. Um, but yeah, it's it, it, just an interesting one, f- funny one. No, I can imagine. And also like very different economic, political context, pandemics that were not <laughs> ever thought to have ha- to happen. Um, huge. Changing. Absolutely a huge. Of, a lot of that. Great. Well, let's jump into our first story of the week. So this one is brought to us by Fierce Healthcare. And Heather Landy tells us that pharma giant Bayer is moving deeper into digital health with its new business unit. Um, It's a precision health unit, and it's going to be ramping up investment into consumer-facing digital health tools and services that will supplement their diagnostic and physical products. Um, So I think it's an interesting move from Bayer, um, especially after, you know, I think we talked about maybe a couple of months ago now, their transition away from the likes of women's health um, and and that broader therapy area into other spaces. And it seems like perhaps this is one of those new areas that they're really kind of doubling down into. Um, and it, they say their core categories are around self-care, cardiovascular disease, digestive health, pain management, and immunity. And we know that they have previously had some pretty big partnerships. So in March 21, Bayer led a pretty cool $90 million Series B um, raise into the AI symptom checker Ada Health, and they previously partnered with the likes of Humor um, to develop a heart disease screening tool as a companion to their consumer brand Aspirin. So, Elena, what's going on here? What's your take on this one? Yeah, so I mean, I was super interested to hear about this, as you rightly mentioned, Jess, because obviously Bayer announced that they are decreasing the R and D spend on women's health, um, which doesn't mean that, you know, they're going to still focus on um, the products that they have already um, commercially available and and how to optimize, you know, selling um, these commercial products um, in different areas. But yeah, when I read this, I I was really interested because for a long time, I mean, I used to work in an innovation center and a pharmaceutical innovation center and this topic of bringing in um, digital technologies and and supplementing products that exist with all of these new startups, these new technologies, these new um, monitoring systems has always been more a theoretical, strategic, top level discussion, um, and we haven't really seen it in action up until now the the last couple of years. So really being able to, I think, have good case studies to look into, such as what you mentioned, Ada Health, um, Humor, um, from a startup's perspective, but also from an industry an industry's perspective. Um, has been like I guess my biggest uh, interest in this space because you you never really know what like at what level these companies are looking um, to partner with digital health therapeutics and what areas what level of recognition and validation you need um, and I think it's now becoming more and more evident that 
it is moving forward. It is the future and that pharmaceutical companies are rightly putting the efforts and are realizing that they are not the tech experts and they have to work with partnerships um, and with companies that are the experts in these smaller domains to be able to execute. And they are the experts with their, you know, with their, with their products, their consumer products and with, um, and with getting to patients. But um, yeah, really just curious to see how this model will translate, I think, overall um, within pharma and how fast we are all going to be seeing these changes happening. Yeah. I also wonder whether, you know, having also worked in pharma and more on kind of the, on the comm side, I, I wonder whether it's also a symptom of growing confidence in digital health. And I know that when I was working in this space, there was, there was cautious interest, but there digital health in the round was not well known or understood. It was still very new and it still is. But I think between then and where we are now, I think these big pharma companies are increasingly seeing the value in either doubling down into developing, you know, bespoke products or indeed creating companion assets alongside their existing commercial products. Um, And so I think that there's an element of of that as well. Um, And I do think that pharma is inherently relatively risk averse in trying these things and in trying new things and new technologies. I think you're absolutely right when you talk about them recognizing that they are not the innovators here, that actually in order to be able to utilize digital health, they need to have the right partnerships and collaborations. And the other thing that I find interesting as well is that I think for a long time, when we take that innovative view, pharma has often been seen as this cash cow, that pharma has money, how do we get in and how do we capitalize on it? Whereas now what I think this represents with increasing numbers of these innovation hubs springing up and having more investment put behind them is that actually it's not just about pharma being a cash cow it's about them being a legitimate partner for an innovator to bring a solution to scale and to patients and to get data get evidence and to iterate a product and bring in additional expertise and yes, obviously there is that revenue element that you know you, that you'll never get away from that. But I think we've moved away from the conversation of farmers simply being a cash cow and actually understanding their their role in this digital health space and them understanding their role too. And then equally with these increasing innovation hubs popping up, a clear route into them rather than just farmer being this kind of big elusive concept and just kind of scattergun approach to anyone who might have a, a big farmer email address. Actually, there's a clear space where if you want to make impact, that's definitely a place to start. Um, so I think it's really encouraging. And I, I really am enjoying seeing this increasing clarity over the roles that different groups are taking in the healthcare ecosystem, you know, to progress healthcare as a whole um, and to progress digital health and to progress medicine and healthcare from the consumer side and also on the clinical side. I guess to provide perhaps a bit of balance here, like I don't quite get it. And this might be just, this might be me just not being able to add this up here. But so this whole, this whole notion is about Bayer and Pharma getting more into digital health, right? I'm just not exactly clear what their goal is now there's lots that this pharma that pharma companies do ventures i get it i get what Bayer ventures is doing they can double down on 
certain digital health companies that will be in and around their drug therapy areas and increase sales of their drug. Fine. I get that. They can hedge even against that with ventures. Fine. I get it. Um, they can invest in companies that are going to do things to increase awareness into the areas where they have drugs and they can increase their drug sales. Again, I get it. Is it that broadly they're looking to increase their drug sales with this activity or is it that they genuinely care about the prevention side and dropping the amount of drugs that need to be taken for various reasons and are they investing in the digital health to make money from it purely from that way? So I don't know. Now, the the partnership thing with Humor, for example, again, I get it. So you're going to do partnerships with digital health companies because they've now put you know a screening tool for aspirin on their website obviously that's to increase sales of aspirin the advantage to the patient being that they can get themselves screened it shows that they could do with you know low amounts of aspirin every day to prevent blah 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 like okay everyone's broadly a winner but they're still trying to increase sales of their drug then then it it doesn't feel like you know the the, the advice is going to be diet and exercise and don't come near us so there's a there's a there's a bit here of like what are the intentions and I'm I'm not I'm not completely clear on it and I'm not saying at all by the way that Bayer have bad intentions here I just think that from this article I can't quite glean what is actually happening and there's a couple of quotes in here we believe the best of precision health will be driven by partnerships so we look forward to the most innovative evidence driven companies committed to transforming everyday health fine. We believe we can help customers move from reactive to proactive aging with individual insights about their biological age at all stages of life. Okay, fine. So they want to help consumers be proactive in their aging and looking after their health. Great. But then it also says, it talks about the the ability to reverse biological age. And the quote here, think about what that is worth. What proactive steps would you take if you had the insights and tools available to turn back the biological clock? This is the promise of precision health, shifting the paradigm from sick care to healthcare. So again, but it doesn't, for me, I'm not, I'm not clear on what, what is it that they're going to do in that prevention prediction helping with aging i'm just not clear and that's a bit vague so again i'm not sure if this is just me not quite getting it and i'm not from the pharma world as much as you two so i don't know it as much but i again i i'm call me cynical no and i think you you mentioned all of like just all the benefits and all the value that you've mentioned is very much dependent on how the consumer is going to actually Um, perceive this like do consumers actually want to be using digital apps and digital health and monitoring that they know pharma will utilize pharma will use but not only the consumer but also clinics and physicians because um, I can give you an example with Dharma but we have been asked numerous times by clinics and physicians whether we work with pharma and whether you know the recommendations or what we will be doing has anything to do with pharma and that's actually sometimes a make it or break it for some of these partnerships so actually it's just it's very interesting to see yeah first of all what the real intention is behind these partnerships but then whether they can even achieve it because it's 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 an ecosystem. It's whether the consumer um, sees the perceived value and understands the perceived value and then is willing to use, you know, these um, digital tools. And then whether the physicians as well, 
we'll implement it into the workflow, we'll actually, you know, champion it. Um, so it's a big project and uh, big claims. Um, and I mean, I love everything that they're, they're saying here in terms of proactive health. But yeah, I think you, you bring up a really good point in terms of what does this really mean in reality? And how long will all of this take? Um, and how will it be executed? Because it's not just pharma investing in it. It's um, the rest of the stakeholders also um, accepting it. Yeah. And I suppose to balance my own cynicism there, perhaps, or, or, or arguments is that actually, I think what is undeniable is that if we can align the incentives of digital health companies and pharma, my goodness, the amount of capital that will flow in, the amount of potential impact that can be attached to that can flow in. And at a time where we're struggling economically and everyone's having to extend their runways, VCs are investing less, there's less flowing in, quite nice timing if we think we can do this. And actually, if if those health tech companies that have got certain intentions can align with pharma that also have certain intentions but can bring their resource ultimately if everyone's aligned on value to patients like well the rest might just be details and actually let's just focus on the impact um and just getting us to somewhere better than we are now absolutely i mean i have to say that that claim of turning back the clock is a bold and a big claim from big pharma and i'm really surprised <laughs> that that got through regulatory approval um, but I think to your point on incentives, I think you're absolutely right. And ultimately, with any commercial organization, you can't get away from, from revenue and profit. You can't. Um, however, the article, ultimately good article, but perhaps does a disservice in a lack of detail and talking about in more detail about the intentions, which also farmer are not going to come out and say we're doing this because we're going to make more money. Like no one, like no one will say that. But I, what I do genuinely think is that in these scenarios, as you've just said there, everyone can win because we also know that lots of people don't take medication in the right way. And I think a big motivation for pharma is making sure that the treatments and the therapies that they develop are administered and are utilized in the right way because that improves outcomes. Everyone benefits when health outcomes are improved. And if that means that less people take it, but more people are taking it for taking it better and their health is then better then i i don't see that as necessarily a a bad thing i think it perhaps changes you know the way that all medicines are are priced and there's a lot of talk about value-based pricing and all of those kinds of things but ultimately i think yeah i think there are good there are good intentions but we can't shy away from the fact that a commercial company is going to be driven by commercial incentives too. Um, and I think the other part of this is about trust. Um, as you said there, Elena, where, you know, the clinicians have to trust it, patients also have to trust it too, and, and consumers have to be able to trust it. And I do think that with COVID, trust in farmers kind of two things have happened. I think it's become more polarized. There are more people who have stronger opinions, but I do I have seen, and this is incredibly anecdotal, in the broad, trust in pharma has slowly started to increase. And I think what's clever about these partnerships is not only a pharma, they're recognizing they're not innovators, but they also recognize that they're not trusted entities completely, but they're also being able to leverage the trust that 
people, whether it's clinicians or patients, will have in a health tech company. And so I think those health tech companies can therefore broker that trust for pharma as well. And I see that as a positive thing, by the way, because I do think that, yes, there are good reasons for some mistrust and there are in any big corporate organizations and industries. But I think that's that's an important role that these innovators and solutions can also play because it it doesn't look or feel like pharma. You're interacting with something that is departed from your big pharma logos that we're, we're used to seeing. And I think that feels more comfortable. Um, so it's like a softer sell of big pharma, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think if you can get the trust angle and you can and you can get that right, the, there's so much power also in these digital um kind of health solutions to also an area that I'm deeply passionate about, collect real world data that can represent, you know, populations in the right way, which means that you can start getting a lot more data that is representative of minority groups, women, um, females, that isn't previously maybe prioritized in budgets when we, when, you know, pharma have done studies in the past. And I think there, there's so much value there to have a lot more data to be able to make actually you know, representative decisions on therapeutics and um, on the way that maybe different populations, different age groups, different genders and sexes will need to take medication um, as well, which I think that's where like the power of this could be so, um, yeah, so cool and, and, and has such a big potential to fill that gap that previously exists. Um, so, yeah, really hoping that, <laughs> you know, some of these things um, are worked on and, and continue to to be done in the right ways um, because there is there is very very great potential to fill in those like data gaps um, as well at scale which we really really desperately need in the healthcare industry I think it will come down to transparency at the end of the day I think trust is built on transparency and if you're open and honest about how things are being used or how data is being used in particular and Philip from Fitfile he talks about this really well in that actually if you're transparent about how it's used and how everyone gets to benefit and how actually that value is therefore dispersed across the entire ecosystem that is where you build trust and that's where you genuinely start to make impact because everyone feels like they're winning and no one feels like they're being screwed over at the cost of somebody else. So I think that's exciting. And I think probably increasing that conversation and I understand why people shy away from transparency to the level that lots of stakeholders would like to see. But I think we're seeing an increasing call for it and people starting to answer that, which is in my book, you know, a really positive move in the right direction and ultimately ends up, we means that we all end up in a much better place. I just want to add one thing that I'm reading a book at the minute called Corporate Rebels, which I don't know if any of you listening knows about, but they talk about trust and transparency being the two most important things, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but in the first half of the book anyway, trust and transparency also being the two most important things to actually run a team of people, i.e. a company. And actually, the more that you can increase trust and transparency, to your point, exactly what you've just said, nobody feels like they're being screwed over out of resources because they can see how you're trying to do literally everything. It also just fosters like creativity and, and being able to kind of solve problems from different angles in a way that you don't feel, you know, you will be overstepping. Um, and I think it's it's um, something that the healthcare industry is now learning to do a lot better and is doing a lot more and is demonstrating. But yeah, in such complex systems, it's always, it's always difficult to to find the balance between it all. 
It is indeed. Recognition Health has opened a concussion clinic featuring brain scanning tech from a company called Mindspan. Now, ultimately, it uses a technology called MED, which is a non-invasive procedure that previously has only been used by academia in in research settings and for research participants um, and in some clinical settings but not it's not super common um, and ultimately what what that technology does is that it measures electrical signals between the neurons to form a really detailed map of brain activity and provides a baseline that then that brain activity can be measured against so that if someone does experience a brain trauma or they want to track how their condition is behaving they have a baseline to measure that off and i think this is really interesting timing this news because increasingly we are seeing celebrities sports stars coming forward talking about the impact of concussion specifically long term and so we've heard ryan jones we've heard michael Littman, both ex-professional rugby players and ex-international rugby players announcing early onset dementia where they've experienced repeated concussions we know it's a big conversation in the professional sports space and it's actually quite a big taboo and you know Colin Gibson ex-man you and Aston Villa player also the same thing and obviously you know professional sport is just one space where you know we see repeated repeated concussions it happens at grassroots and it happens in everyday life too and so actually we track so much of the rest of our health. I think it's really interesting that this approach is looking at tracking your brain and using it in this clinical setting and bringing technology that really is only seeing the walls of academia into a clinical setting. So what do you guys make of this one? Yeah, a brand new technology when it hits like this, like I'm sure many people will have never heard of MEG, magnetoencephalography, by the way. Um, as opposed to EEG or similar. I think when a new technology comes along like this, I think it's easy to be cynical. Now, Mindspan and Caitlin, Jessica, you and I obviously know Caitlin relatively well, and we've done some work at Mindspan. So to declare that, you know, we we have worked with them because it's a technology that we did due diligence on ourselves before we started working with Mindspan. And actually to to have what what is Dr. Stephen at, uh, older here, the a consultant urologist as well, explaining what this technology actually is and why it's useful. And also to look at the history of it, to see that it's been uh, used in research for a long time and in clinical settings too. And so actually, we're still in early days, it feels like, which are, are, are both unsure but exciting about the true potential of MEG. And using this to map brain function as a score, which can then track concussion recovery and obviously requires a baseline measurement to be made so that then when there is an issue like concussion, the recovery from it can be, you know, as you mentioned, really tough to know when on earth you bring someone back because of course the sports person wants to come back early. And, and again, this is about aligning incentives to make it useful, but you do not want to bring a sports person back too early from this sort of thing. And so this, it, it, we're at the beginning here, I feel, of like something that can be incredibly useful in lots of different ways. We just don't know what those ways are yet, that this is the start of something that 
I think can be quite powerful. And when you've got consultant urologists backing it, when you've got um, entrepreneurs developing it in such a way that can bring this value, I think it's interesting. I think it's exciting. Yeah, I echo that, James. I think this is super interesting to me because I feel like we in general, just know so little about the brain. And it's just one of those organs that we mm. have so little access um, to in general, unless you, yeah, you've actually had to go see a neurologist or you've had to have some sort of scan. Um, it's also something that you barely really touch, even in biology class and basic biology when you're at school. And so it's like really trying, it's bringing forward um, access to a part, a huge part of us um, to, again, like, the consumer, the patient in a way that um, has never been done before. And I find that super fascinating. Um, really curious to see, you know, how much education will have to be kind of supplemented to the patient around understanding, identifying, recognizing, you know, the images that are presented to them and the results, right? Because that, I, I assume there's quite a big um, general health education gap um, to understanding this organ mm -hmm. as well and being able to interpret it. So you don't actually cause more confusion. And um, so, yeah, really fascinated. I don't know if you guys have more insights from, from Mindspan's approach on that, um, but would love to hear. Mm. I think that's something that Mindspan actually do really well. So a, a huge part of this is actually not just extracting that data, but analyzing that and translating that into what that actually means so that you as a patient, as a person, have that information in your hands and you actually understand it and you know what you can do with it. So I think, you know, we talk about shared decision making all the time in, in a clinical setting. And I think being able to have information like that, as you rightly say, that you do know what it means, you understand the implications and there is actionable advice in there for you really helps you be a part of that decision making, especially when we're talking about, you know, traumatic brain injury here, whether it's, you know, someone on behalf like on behalf of a patient or a patient themselves going through something really difficult being able to have that insight and understanding over what is going on in this space between their ears that they don't understand I think is incredibly powerful but you're absolutely right you have to be able to get that analysis and that education piece right for it actually to be meaningful and translate into something that is going to benefit patients and ultimately their care in collaboration, obviously, with clinical teams. And I think that's definitely one thing that we talk about a lot on here, actually, is that piece around, it's often with diagnostic kits and, and those kinds of things. And there are increasing numbers of them and all, you know, lots of them doing really incredible things. But it's that counselling piece and that translation and education piece that is so crucial that's almost more important than the actual information that is coming off the back of it. Um, and, yeah, as James said, you know, knowing knowing Mindspan as we do, I think that's one thing, you know, I'm really proud to be able to champion them for is that they, they do get that really right. And there's, you know, lots of other organisations do, doing similar things and making sure that I guess tackling that patient education piece and I think it's really needed really needed especially as we you know we've just been talking about preventative care and self-care and empowering people to take more control over whether it's managing a condition or just managing their health more broadly people only do that when they understand and also that they're incentivized and so information is really key to that and yeah we don't sometimes realize like even being able to communicate things in different health literacy levels for different people and, and, and really the power that can have because 
think a huge part of healing and dealing with a condition, whether it's chronic or not, is is also just your mental state towards that and um, and just being able to feel like you're in control and you understand it um, is such a large part of being able to to control the disease and, and, and your symptoms and your diagnosis. So, yeah, really exciting stuff. Um, hadn't really seen anything like this before and um, we'll definitely follow along, follow the journey along. Yeah, it's a heck of a frontier, this. I think in, until someone can explain to me that when you keep go if you keep going trying to understand the brain you ultimately come down to atoms contemplating atoms until someone can explain that to me i welcome any new technology that comes along to help us understand more because i think we're quite far away from understanding that phrase (laughs) so yes the more new technology the better agreed Okay, for our next story, I hope you are all settled down. You've got your popcorn ready because let me tell you, you are going to need it. Airing tonight on Channel 4 is Davina McCall's Pill Revolution documentary. And from what I've heard, it is hoping up to be really, really exciting. Um, I know I want to almost claim this as a hat trick. I know it's not because we didn't catch Women's Health last week. I was off sick, so I couldn't jump in and get my 10 pence in. But we've had a really good run on these podcasts of Women's Health. Uh, so I'm going to I'm gonna claim it as a hat trick. And I've heard these whispers about this documentary. And we, we talk a lot about, you know, this lack of understanding around women's experiences of healthcare and very specifically around their hormonal health. And, you know, the very common experiences, particularly around hormonal contraception. And that's at all stages of life, you know, whether you've been put on the pill because you perhaps have experienced teenage hormonal acne or you have you're taking HRT because you're experiencing the menopause. It, it affects so many people at every stage of life. And, it, you know, we know that so many people feel like they're just given the pill. They don't really understand the context behind it, whether it's the right one for them. And I know it's a, certainly amongst the people that I talk to, uh, it's a big conversation. Should we be taking the pill? What contraception should we be using? How does it affect our bodies? And I think it's amazing to be seeing this in the mainstream, really interrogating the science behind it. But Elena, you have been a little bit involved in this one. So do you want to tell us a bit more about what we might be able to expect tonight when we're sat down on the sofa with a popcorn? So we're really excited at Dharma for this documentary because, as you rightly mentioned, we're finally getting a lot of um, attention, airtime, um, media around the topic that we are so passionate about, which is contraception, side effects, um, the data gap in the research on contraception and hormonal health. And um, Dharma Health actually has a feature, a small feature in this documentary where we talk a little bit more about our research, um, but ultimately... It's an exciting piece to go out in the mainstream because it does start kind of highlighting this topic, this taboo topic um, that a lot of people don't talk about. Women within circles do talk about this. Um, People who send female at birth talk about this. Um, But Davina is really starting to question and, and start talking about this black hole in the research. And I think she's really just putting the facts in front of people so we can actually all as a society start having a discussion um, around something that is happening to the majority of the female population. So actually, I think this is something that they talk about in the documentary, but we've also done our own research on. And um, it's crazy. And this this stat really just does shock me every time. But 80% of contraceptive users 
around 80% experience side effects. Um, and this shocks me because when you think about the reasons why women take contraception, um, yes, it's for birth control in a lot of cases, but it's also to prevent, you know, other underlying conditions, other symptoms. But when you think about the population, the healthy population that is taking contraception um, just for birth control reasons, and you're hearing this 80% of them experiencing side effects, ultimately what we're really seeing here is that we are making 80% of the population a little bit more ill. We are actually decreasing their quality of life and we're not really putting the resources and, and, the, and the attention into understanding how we can improve this. And the fact that you're making healthy individuals just kind of conform to this, that we're accepting that, you know, 80% of women will have debilitating quality of life in some form of manner, is why we really started the research that we did at Dharma Health, trying to better understand what what should we be doing about this? How can we avoid this? How can we go around this? How can we better tailor treatments to people so we avoid this? Um, and yeah, the documentary really does just put more spotlight into it, um, questioning really why there isn't more R&D, more development happening in this field, what are the exciting new kind of um, insights. And um, yeah, really excited for, for everyone to watch it so it becomes more of a dinner a dinner table conversation and not something that is still a very taboo subject to talk about. Excited for, for it to air? Me too, me too. And I think the important thing to remember as well is that, yes, like that's, that, that stat is really, really startling. And yes, it is making people more unwell, but also contraception is a really incredible innovation that we have seen largely, you know, in our lifetime and actually probably the lifetime of maybe one or two generations before us. It's still relatively new. And the fact that we have it at all is amazing. And we have those options is amazing. But I think the issue is, as you rightly say, it's our lack of understanding about how and where this is used and, and really that personalized element clearly you know, lots of people are on the wrong contraception if they're experiencing some of these side effects and they can still benefit from contraception. Maybe it's just a different pill or maybe it's a, a different method entirely, but actually finding the right one for them. And I think often this debate flips between should you take the pill or not, or is the pill awful for you and that isn't I don't think the discussion the discussion is about getting like we were saying earlier getting the right people to have the right solution for them so that less people experience those side effects and they have the better quality of life and the outcome is then better um and so for me that's what's exciting because it's not so polarizing that you know all artificial quote unquote hormones are terrible for you it's about look at all of these solutions that we possibly have how do we how do we make sure that the right people get the right ones and actually do we need to develop different solutions that can be more personalized um, and evolve our thinking around how we're prescribing these kinds of medicines and solutions and contraceptives because that's a big part of the story too but because we don't have that understanding we don't know the answer yet and that's what I feel so excited about with the work that you're doing is that you're really just lifting the lid and we're only just starting to now really, truly be able to get a download on and answer some of those questions. There are so many and it's going to take us, I think, generations to come to really get to the bottom of that in a significant way. But the fact that we're starting to do that, I think I am so excited for. Absolutely. I think 
you rightly put it. I think um, it's important to note that, you know, contraceptives benefit so many women. And that's exactly, especially understanding um, women who have underlying health conditions like endometriosis, PCOS, who have heavy bleeding and can't go to work. The contraceptives um, available in the market have have really just you know, improved um, all of these symptoms and outcomes as well for women. Um, and that's really based on that science and understanding the risk benefit for that specific individual is what we want to start bringing to everyone. So better being able to personalize um, the whole experience, um, but not just taking into account your biology, your medical history, and your genetics, but also what is important to you in terms of your goals, you know, what is your lifestyle, because ultimately, it's such a shared decision making when you're choosing contraception with your physician, right? It's, it's not like you have this diagnosis, and you've got four options of treatments that you know, you your physician will, will recommend it, it really is like a two way discussion. And ultimately, you can leave, you can get something prescribed, and you can leave that consultation, and you can choose to not take you know, the prescription and ultimately that is at your risk. And so that's why being able to understand and have a discussion, have the right tools, the right screening and the right um, methods available for people so that there there is that risk benefit analysis happen is, happening is super important. And that's just not happening right now. And we're seeing that because one in three women are stopping to take contraception because of the side effects. Um, so why is that happening? Is it because there's an, there's a huge education gap? They're not understanding, you know, the risk benefit of different methods for them. Um, we actually did a a really large study, um, kind of interviewing and survey with 200 OBGYNs and physicians and hundred percent of them said that they think that, you know, patients and women coming to them need more education and need to better understand contraceptive options. Um, and a hundred percent, it was all of them, you know, it's starting from, from an education perspective and, and, and them just not being able to use the five, 10, seven minutes that they have available, um, as a GP to explain all of this, to educate. And so there's so much we can do in this field, but what we're really interested in at Dharma is, is just better being able to understand different populations and different demographics and the differences um, between how people react to medication, because we're realizing there's a huge, again, gap in the data. We have a research scientist on the team that's working at Dharma, and, and she did a study with an Ethiopian community where they measured kind of the different side effect profiles that women were experiencing in Ethiopia to better understand, you know, why there was dropouts, non-adherence, and Interestingly enough, the most reported side effect that this community of women were, experiences, were experiencing was not reported at all in the leaflet. Um, it wasn't something that was ever, you know, like published. It was actually a skin rash that women were getting underneath their faces. Um, and you start questioning, okay, why is this happening? Is this because, you know, the clinical trials were not done in a population um, that was representing the Ethiopian community? Is it because of the reaction of the drug with the sun and, you know, the different geographical differences that is creating different side effects on women? There's so many different variables that could explain this, but that's just the tipping point, right? Of not, if we can't even understand what side effects different communities are getting, you're not really able to better, to make better treatment recommendations for them. Um, And that's really what kind of excites us. Um, We're starting from the beginning, as you mentioned, Jess, like there's, there's a lack of data. So we're really having to start from the beginning and starting to collect, you know, all of this information so that we can bring product services and solutions to market that truly service the needs of all these women um, in a way that hasn't really been done um, before. So 
I'm really hoping that, you know, this documentary will spark interest, more investment um, and just more conversations around the table to um, to encourage, you know, R&D, <laughs> um, but also better provision of care around contraception because it affects us all really as a society. Yeah, we've talked about frontiers today and we've talked about, you know, the frontier in, in understanding the brain. That seems like an appropriate frontier for the complexity. The fact that women's health personalised uh, and precision medicine around contraception for women, the fact that that is a frontier, I think is a little bit embarrassing, um, to be perfectly honest. I, I think that shouldn't be, given the advances that we've made in that across everything else. And so it really feels like we're behind. And actually, the the only potential advantage I can see there is the size of the opportunity now for entrepreneurs like yourself, Elena, with the technology that we now have and the ability that we now have, there is still an uphill battle because as you say, it starts with collecting the data. Um, but I think with people like yourself and others, I think it, it's imperative that we close this gap as soon as possible. All right. Well, I agree with all of the above. And I just want to say that Elena, it has just been such a delight and just so inspiring to watch you and Paulina and the rest of your team go on this journey. And I love seeing all of your announcements popping up and all the things that you're doing. And I learn something all the time when, you know, the content that you're posting, particularly on Instagram. Um, and, you know, I always say this, all these conversations, I, I feel like I'm pretty up to speed on what's going on in women's health and, you know, how things affect me and my body, but I continue to learn through these conversations and the content that companies like you are putting out. And yeah, it's just been a real privilege to be able to watch both of you go on this journey. So yeah, thank you for giving us a front row seat. Thank you both for having me. And also just wanted to share that thanks to the Somex team, Jess and James, actually I met my co-founder and Dharma Health is where it is today. So we have pretty much everything to thank <laughs> um you guys were really <laughs> the the beginning of our journey um so thank you so much for making making dharma reality as well all right well with that i think we can wrap up leave everyone to their popcorn and catch you all next week to talk about some more health tech news